0: It's uh the twenty first of june two thousand thirteen. I'm in Stockport, Cheshire, um, for episode one of Four on the Four podcast with Steve White. Steve Good afternoon, good afternoon. or
1: good evening or Where scenario, are you, wherever you,
0: you may be. be. Hope it's been a great day and good night. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for being my um guinea pig, my Pleasure. first podcast.
1: I hope you liked your pie.
0: We had pie. Good. And night. it was really good with gravy and Peas and mash and uh, happy days. I was thinking, you're on the way up. That um, let's just say that Steve and I have been friends for a long time, uh, over 15 years. We had an association through Premier together, and I knew you before that. At foots, foots, yeah. I used to see you in there. And if you'd said, if we'd said to each other, sort of, you know, 2000, turn of the century, you know, that we would both be residing in the north of England. Yeah. you'd have probably said not in a million years I wouldn't be up there and I would have said the same and here we are in Stockport today yeah. and you're now half and half between between two places aren't yes,
1: you? Yes it, it's a, a necessity because of my partner and seem to be wife Sally she's an actress and, and part of the the great changes that have gone on in the entertainment industry um, with, with the whole BBC moving north and films and studios and recordings moving north and, and stuff going between the two cities we have a base in the north and we have a base in the south and it, it works for us i mean i think if you'd have said i would be sitting here in stockport cheshire uh, the father of three-year-old twins um i would you know and not playing with paul weller mm. i would have really said no can't be true yeah. but that is the amazing thing about life is that life does tend to throw up the most incredible curveballs
0: and you kind of just have to go with it, don't you? You kind of have to adapt and... Uh...
1: You have no choice. Yeah. You, you adapt or die. It's a key, key you know, it's survival. Yeah. And, and you, you know, if you don't uh, roll with the changes, whether they be personal or uh, in terms of our business, then what do you do?
0: Yeah, of course. So going back to the very start... Um, it was the boys, but an uncle gave you a snare drum?
1: Yes, in 1969 I was given a snare drum, I was about four years of age and um, <clears throat> just loved the feel of it, loved the, flicking the wires and loved the, the, the sound of the sticks on the vellum which is a vellum head drum and um, he really inspired that early interest and sadly he passed away in 71 and the drum became mine mm. uh, officially and then it wasn't too long after that a year or two we were living in Lewisham, South East London. And uh, I was out with my dad and and just heard this cacophony. It was Mm. the Boys Brigade. And um, they had three snare drummers, a tenor drummer, a bass drummer, drummer, bugles and flags, and and they were marching one Sunday morning. And the sound was just enlightening to me. It just sounded amazing. Mm. And then I got to go, um, very shortly after that, um, the, the Royal Marines were doing these kind of informal demos at a department store called Cheeseman's in South London, in Lewisham, which I can't really see whatever happened now, the Royal Marines in Debenhams. And they had a little drum call there. And these guys were incredible, fantastic players. And I just spent this week when they were doing this demo, this recruiting drive, just talking to the drummers and getting shown little basic things about mummy daddies. And and that's where my consolidation really... It just obsessed me. Mm. It just grabbed me and it just... um, it just kind of just was the thing I wanted to do how old were you before you realised there was more to it than just
0: snare drum how old were you when you realised that it came with a bass drum and more gear
1: not until I was 11 Right. I I was pretty much exclusively on a practice pad or a snare drum from when I started playing at 9 to to 11 and I I had um, my boys brigade teacher you know those teachers in those days, if you were told to practice the practice pad, then you never questioned it. Mm. You practiced on the practice pad and it was only your love and sort of devotion to, to moving on and seeking things out that kept you going mm. um, because your attention, the attention span that, you know, kids have now is somewhat different. Sure. So um, I, I just was told to practice my mummy daddies and my single strokes and my paradiddles and that's what I did.
0: How did you cope with the, the sort of the very structure of that? You know, it's kind of this is what it is and you've, you've, you've got to do it. Did you take to that or did you find that quite hard? I
1: loved it. Right. I loved it. I never ever found any of it in, in terms of improvement as a chore. I mean, at that age, nine, ten, I was also tapping along on the practice pad to records. I had right. a little dance set record player and a, a, an uncle that was a DJ and we used to put the record on and just jam along playing Beatles tunes and things like that so that was all, I just used to think that was fun mm. but it was when I was about 11 that one of, my drum, one of my drum teacher at my senior school that had just joined and said listen, I've got a drum set it's got a red bass drum and two blue toms it's um, 35 quid so I went home to my dad and said, look, I've got a chance of a drum set, it's 35 quid, which was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And um, they bought it for me, mm. and I brought it home, and it didn't have any spurs, and I couldn't work out why it didn't stand up, until my dad kind of worked out that the spurs were missing, and, uh, and that was it. The, the, the eponymous loft came into uh, right. its own, and I was kind of chucked up into the loft, and uh, just pretty much spent my childhood up there. Right. That was it
0: so the Beatles were the first sort of music that you heard
1: we were a, we were was that a, there was
0: a lot of music in the house there, was, there was
1: music in the house it, it was um, music in the house from fans my uncle was a very uh, renowned DJ at the time and, and as I said he gave me a box of um, his seconds which included records by the, the singles by the Beach Boys and by Beatles and Manfred Mann and, and Elvis and all of these and Small Faces and all these different groups and I remember asking for a record player on my sixth birthday, and getting a, an old kind of style dance set record record player. And I just used to sit in my record in, in my um, in my bedroom and play singles and tap tap away. But I was also listen to the lyrics, and I used to know all the lyrics to "She Loves You" and "I Want to Hold Your Hand." I just used to love those songs so much. And then I um, went and b- bought my first single which was um, Come On, Fill The Noise by Slade, because I'd seen them on top of the Pops and I thought they were brilliant. Right. And it's, it's funny because in the past couple of years I've actually got to know Noddy and got to meet Noddy and he's still one of the few people that I get quite starstruck when right. I know that Nod's coming.
0: Yeah. It, cause he, and
1: he's such a lovely guy as well. But um, So I started to buy records and buy music um, when I was five or six. And, you know, getting into the, the drums when I was seven, eight, nine, it just, I don't really remember a life without drums right. okay. and music. So you got in,
0: you, by this time you are in high school now, yeah. were they, they were kind of quite supportive and it was a time when sort of music was in education and they, they didn't, they supported you in, 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 in teaching? or the,
1: the, the way that education worked then was, was quite different to the way it is, does now, and I'm not getting into any kind of political statements, but the school that I went to was the year before I joined a grammar school, and then it became a comprehensive school at the end of that um, term, and it switched. So a lot of the teachers were grammar school teachers, and they were men and women of a certain age they were not very young um the, mr i remember mr coots was a former spitfire pilot in the second world war and mr allison the history teacher had been in africa and exploring and, and mrs parkinson the english teacher had worked for for edr mean i mean these were people with life experience yeah and a lot of the teachers there, like the, the, some of the army, army guys, there were ex-army guys that were running the music department, and they instilled a level of trust into you that I don't think teachers are allowed to. Mm-hmm. I remember being a, a young drummer um, and playing four or five bands at school and being told by um, the, the, the head of music, look, you know, you can practice as much as you like I'm going to write a note for you to come out of games, so you don't have to do games. And he went, It took me over to, to see Mr. Voller, who was the football teacher, and said, is he any good at football? And Mr. Voller said, no, he's rubbish. How would it be if I let him play the drums? Because he loves it, and mm. he's really good at it. And he said, no, that's good. He said, mm. I've got no problem with that. And they both turned around and said, "Why?" If we come down there and find that you're not practicing the drums when you mm. should be playing football, we'll kick you. Yeah, it was, and it was very like they meant it. They, yeah. you know, physically, but you weren't going to mess around with that trust. Yeah, and they would make decisions. I Remember, we had over a hundred kids that played instruments at my school. And I remember in '77, one of the violinists said, "I'm going to be a mod," you know, because the jam were kind of invading the k- charts. So I'm going to be a mod. I don't want to play the guitar anymore. I don't want to play the violin, I want to play the guitar. So Mr McDougall, the head of music, went up to the woodwork department and got them to spray a violin blue and put a target on it so that he wouldn't leave the orchestra. Right. So he had a blue violin with a target on. Right. And, I mean, I just think the fact that I still remember all these teachers and remember their names and can remember the support that they gave me to play the drums. I used to go in at 7.30 in the morning and practice till 9, till lessons started and then I'd go down at lunchtime and practice from 12 till 1 and then I'd go back after school and practice till 6 mm. and play in the band and, and I couldn't couldn't, just couldn't get enough of it
0: Did what about with the rest of the academic stuff like math and English and stuff did you take to that or did you kind of leave it alone I, or?
1: I did my best but I think from um, when I first encountered drumming I think a- academia took a very poor second mm. and I'm I hate to say that but but I, I kind of was just obsessed with drumming mm-hmm. and I did okay um, I did alright in English I liked English I was hopeless at maths I still am um, I enjoyed history I enjoyed those kind of subjects um, you know where you had to use a bit of grey matter but it was just from when I was a kid I knew that I was going to be a drummer Right. and that was it so in some way shape or form everything else was sort of secondary to it um, which is not you know, it's not good but that was just me
0: so were you putting bands together yourself or were, they, or were people in the school inviting you to join their band
1: yeah there were bands um, there, there were. We, we had like a sort of a jazz rock group that we were playing sort of covers of um, tunes by Ian Carr's Nucleus and, and Billy Cobham doing Spectrum and, and, right. and, and Red Baron and, and Al Clay who's the very very famous Hollywood engineer he was kind of in the band too he was playing a bit of drums and keyboards um, and uh, there was a guy called Dave Fitt That was playing sax And, and some really They were very good players um, Go to, uh, we, were, we were very switched on kids So
0: obviously it started with the Beatles And it started with Ringo um, were, the, were you aware of Charlie and the Stones as well?
1: Uh, I, I was never a huge I was never a huge fan of the Stones Because um, You know At that time You were kind of You like the Beatles Or you liked the Stones and, yeah. the, and there was still quite a lot of that Um I'm still not the greatest Rolling Stones fan. Um, I love Charlie. Yeah. I love what Charlie does. But, um, you know, it's just a personal thing. I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not a great Led Zeppelin fan, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. I love John Bonham. But, yeah, but you know, the, the... it doesn't really do it for me.
0: So, somewhere in this time came Buddy. Yeah. And who was it who introduced you to Buddy?
1: It was my dad um, who basically said that um, if it, we, we need to go and see some drummers play. And the first guy that we went to see was Louis. Right. And I went to Ronnie Scott's. Is that going to re- really. I don't know. We'll just it's it's, it's all the uh, plumbing. That's always. We'll have to go with yeah, it, yeah, We're I mean, just talking about the plumbing, yeah, friends. It's the plumbing. That's, uh, um, plumbing in these old buildings. Uh, I went to see with my dad, Louis Belson, in around 1977, 78. I was probably only 11 or 12 maybe. Right. And my dad took me up to Ronnie's and the first set was like 9.50. This was before Frith Street? Yeah, this was in Frith Street. Frith Street, right, okay. And Ronnie would play and Martin Drew would be on drums and John Critchinson and Ron Matheson on bass and look, I'm remembering it all. And then Louie's band and we got to to stay for both sets and I'd never seen anything. I just couldn't, I came away speechless. Mm. And my dad um, had to go to work the next day And he was like, um, you know, getting up at seven o'clock. And basically, we had to uh, wield our way through London, wind our way through London. And I I still have the programme. And then Louis came back and played at the Fairfield Hall's Croydon, and I went back to see him there. And in the meantime, I think it was coming up to about 1980, when Buddy came over to play at Ronnie Scott's. Mm. So I was about 14 by then. And that was going to see Buddy at Ronnie's. Um, I only ever saw Buddy at Ronnie's, but I must have seen him there about eight or nine times. Right. And by the by, the end I'd go on my own. Yeah. And uh, go with my friends. And and I mean, it, you know, he was still at the height of his powers right. at, at that point. I and mean, yeah. he was still playing incredibly. And and still some great players in the band. Like Steve Marcus was still in the band. And and. Um, John Shue was playing trumpet, who came as a peripatetic teacher to my school. Wow! And he was there, and, and I, I went down and I said, like, "You play with Buddy Rich, man, you know." And he was like, "Yeah, I live in London." And, wow! You know, so, I mean, once I kind of discovered Buddy and and Louis, that was it for right. pretty much my teen years. just right. That kind of drumming. So, how
0: did that with like your mates who were saying, "Oh, come on, that's just not hip, man," or you know, whatever, you know, it's like what you know it was also it was like the mods and it was yeah the jam, the jam and, and, and and then punk as well
1: punk had happened and, and in mean, 77 yeah, punk of course. had happened and jack the jam um, so that was when I was around 12 did and you
0: start to feel at odds with kind of your mates
1: never Why? and and the thing the thing was is that we that at my school and and I think it's something now I think that youngsters youngsters now tend to tend to feel um quite uh, uh, you know nervous about being individual they're, they're, they're actually with a small c quite conservative these mm. days you know they, they don't want to look different yeah. you know uh, girls kind of want to have this pouty long hair and long eyelashes and boys seem to want to look like top shop models mm. and, you know that's okay but to, to put on a duffel coat and call yourself a, a goth and yeah. you know kids don't seem to really do it so much yeah. these days so we were all quite comfortable there was the you know the the sort of mods didn't like the the casuals and the casuals didn't like the mods and and there was a lot of black kids that were into reggae and you know what everyone just kind of got on on, and did did what they did and nobody ever really bothered me for for being into jazz and it's it's interesting because I'm doing you know some shows later on in the year and one of the guys that I went to primary school With has managed to get a posse together of guys from primary and secondary school, and is bringing 25 ex school friends to one of my shows. Wow, which is going to be interesting, you know. So, um, uh, so you know, it was it was good. It was a good time. You know, it wasn't like I mean there was like 150 kids in the boys' brigade when I went, and I was into playing the drums, but we didn't, you know. Going to Boys Brigade wasn't considered naff, you know, Mm. like now. It's a really good Boys Brigade, you know. We didn't care. Everyone did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was into it. I was in the Boys Brigade.
0: I did it, I joined it, my dad was in it. Did you think... What did you think about making a living? What did you think you were going to do when you left school?
1: When... I was never under any illusion that I was going to do this as a profession. Right. um, And I was very lucky because I got to meet... um, uh, Bob Lloyd was the careers master mm. at my school and I, I would imagine if, unless he's incredibly old that he's probably passed away now um, and Bob was actually a French teacher when Ginger Baker was at Shooters Hill Grammar right. so when I went into him as careers master and said I want to be a drummer which at that point was pretty much laughed at yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. drums were no way taken seriously as an instrument then. yeah um, there were no, you know, the Royal Academies, the Royal College, Guildhall. They didn't teach yeah. drums, you know, percussion maybe, yeah. temps, Drum set was never taught. So to actually get some encouragement from Bob was actually quite good. He said, you know, you can make a living as a drummer. I might, I might try and get hold of Ginger, mm-hmm. Peter, and see what he says about it. So that was really nice. I felt quite good. But in the meantime, I'd actually joined the Musicians' Union, and at the time, you had to go down to Charlton Athletic Football Club, the Valley, where the Musicians' Union had their meeting. And you had to present your application. I was about 13. And you literally had to play a double-stroke roll, and you had to play a paradiddle, and you had to play in front of the assembled musos before the jam session while they were having a, a, a Sunday morning pint, you know. And it was full, this place. So I got up and I did my paradiddle. Of my double stroke and played my foxtrot and my swing pattern and got told that I could join the Musicians Union mm. and that was lovely and as I was wandering away from the stage after this audition um, this guy came up to me and he said um, do you want to do a gig? do want to play? and I was like what, what, what do I need to do? he went right he said next Saturday C Cup Conservative Club do you know where that is? and I said well yeah I said my dad will know so he said just bring your drum set Come down and his name was Roy and, as they all were yeah. and um, I went up and, and got to Sid Cup Conservative Club on the Saturday and me, me and my dad thought it was a wind up because there, there was this incredibly grand Sergeant Major type figure who had just um, just waxed uh, just varnished the dance floor <laughs> and there was no way that anyone was going to dance on that dance floor Right. so I turned up at a dance yeah. where everybody was dancing around on the carpet wow and literally, Roy said to me, he said, I'll count you off, and I'll tell you what to play. Right. The style. Yeah. And he said, it will be swing. Yeah. Waltz. Yeah. Pop. Yeah. And he gave me just these. And yeah, he said, yeah. and I'll count you in. And he said, I just want you to play. He said, I don't know, want you to fill. Yeah. I just want you to play what I tell you. And then he said, and I will signal you for the end. Yeah. So I did tie a yellow ribbon. And I learned these phrases. It would mm. be uh, country. Yeah. So you'd... Mm, that, mm, that, mm, that. You, you wouldn't know what song he was about to yeah. play. Yeah. And he had this repertoire of songs and it just kept coming. Motown songs, you know. So I got to play an incredible amount of songs. Mm. And the main thing was I got paid. Yeah. And I was getting like 40 quid. Wow. Which at 14, 15 was pretty good money. Yeah. I was always incredibly entrepreneurial I wanted to earn money. Um, money was, was, you know, money was tight in, in, in those times. Yeah, it was tight for everybody, yeah. you know, unless you were loaded. I mean, you know, it, it was a different thing, and we were tight for money in our house. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to put this pressure on mum and dad. I went out. I started with the car washing, started cleaning cars, and getting a couple of quid for doing that. And then I, I, I met with a guy called Les Land, who was very well known in the area. And he literally gave me a job as a car washer car cleaning VW camper vans. And I used to make 25 quid on Saturday, but I'd have to clean about 11 vans. And I just used to have a radio to keep me company. And I always used to look forward to, like, Saturday afternoon, because the rock show used to be on mm. Radio 1. So I used to be able to listen to King Crimson and, and Genesis and all these kind of sort of serious bands at the time, mm. doing sessions and things like that. And by the time I left school, with my various... Coal rounds, gigs, car washing exploits. I was making about £200 a week. Wow. And actually took a pay cut when I joined the Style Council. Wow. And so, you know, I, never, I was never short of money. And
0: so before we get to the, the Style Council, uh, ILEA, you went to a, yeah. like a, tra- a, a school I, in I London. Got, I got sent,
1: sent up to um, the uh, Centre for Young Musicians in Pimlico which um, was CYM, which it was full of very middle class, lots of middle class kids there. I've never met anyone in my career that said I was at CYM at the same time as you. Right. And it, Although there was, apart from Gary Wallace, right. when we got chucked out. Right. We, we were the bad boys. Um, there was a guy called Dennis Neal, who was the drum teacher. Yeah. He was a lovely guy, Dennis, and he kind of um, said... My hands, he looked at my hands and said, y- your, he said, y- Your hand shape is exactly the same as Joe Morello. And I, I didn't know Joe that well because I knew Buddy and Louie. But he was very kind to me and introduced me to things like the uh, Jim Chapin book, Jazz yeah. Independence. Dennis played at Talk of the Town, you know, he kind yeah. of had the, the gold medallion and yeah. the, big, the big Buddy glasses. And, and he was a, he, he kind of talked in a slight American accent, even though he was from, I think, you know, from the north. Yeah. But he was a lovely guy and it was very encouraging and then michael skinner came in as a deb right from the royal opera house who so i saw just last week michael and he he was fantastic his kind of analysis of how of snare drum playing and and uh, and practice and, and introducing me to things like bars and drumming was yeah so i was getting a lot out of the the, the cym but i wasn't really kind of progressing academically Right. So I wasn't very good with the orchestras. I didn't really take up my um, piano studies the way that I should have. And me and Gary eventually got asked to leave because we were asked to babysit someone whose sister was a fairly eminent member of the orchestra. And this lad was kind of given to us in the percussion section as as like, well, get, let him play the gong or something like that. And we thought a bit like, this is a bit, you know, cheesy. He can't really play. He's waiting yeah. for us to... Sort of trigger, you know, to, 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 to cue it. Yeah, yeah. What are we supposed to be doing? So we did this concert for all the all the dignitaries from the ILEA, all these old, you know, Lady Puffington Smythe, and all these people. And um, we, it was at a school in Stockwell, Stockwell Grammar School, it was, Stockwell, Stockwell Park School. And at the end of it was the Jesus Christ Superstar medley. And it kind of gets to the very end, and we do all the ba 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 ba. And it stopped, and then we went to this this guy. Go, and he hit the gong. Just like completely, <laughs> we just yeah, completely, <laughs> completely randomly. Yeah. Everyone looked round. Me and Gary were on the floor just laughing, <laughs> and that was the last thing we ever did for and the right. We never got asked back. But
0: the interesting thing there was that you met Gary, and Gary, I guess, had a similar attitude to you. Was he older than you? It was a year older, than right? Me,
1: and we just started to feed off each other. And, and, and I used to go around to. I mean, I found you know I found a fellow obsessive. Yeah. And Gary um, was just obsessed with Billy Cobham so it was the incessant you know Billy's better than Buddy Buddy's better than Billy and well Fox on's quite good isn't it mm. and Gary lived in a in a flat in East uh, just off of East Street and these flats were pretty much concrete that's you know they were well, upstairs and downstairs masonettes I guess and um so Gary had a bedroom that had an eleven-piece premier kit in, one of those sky blue ones that Tristan Fry used to yeah. use with Sky. And it was set up with Zildjian cymbals, and he worked out how to soundproof the door, so literally we could play the drums and no one could hear you. Yeah. And that's what we used to do. We used to just go up there, and he would shed away on Cobham tunes, and I'd put a Buddy track on. And we would just have practice pads and we would play all night. Yeah. All night. Yeah, and yeah his mum, bless her, would give us some cheese sarnies. And we'd just sit in the room listening to music and yeah. playing. But then around sort of 15, 16, I was doing my kind of you know, gigs and Gary was gigging. And we just knew that we needed to move into the music business. Yeah. What do we do? You know, how do we get into the music business? And Gary got me, I don't know how he did it, but he got me into a band, a mod band, called mm. Flat 19. Right. Which were sort of doing stuff on the mod scene in, in, in that kind of, like, 82 time. And Gary got the gig with The Truth, a band called The Truth, run by Dennis Greaves. So Flat 19 was supporting Dennis Greaves and The Truth. And at 16, I was doing gigs at the Marquee.
0: So you'd left school? You... I was still at school. Right, okay. Still at school, yeah. So... Before we get to how that led into the council, you did a musical, didn't you? I did, a,
1: I did a musical at the Albany Empire. Yeah, Albany, yeah. I used to teach at the um, the music project, the Lewisham Music Project, which, which was in an old mortuary, right. just off of Lewisham High Street. And all the kids used to come, and and I was got the job of doing drum courses, and I used to love it. We're just hanging out, teaching little kids how to play rock beats, although they used to like to play reggae beats, and. Um, I got asked uh, that, that, you know... Gary, again, we were very involved in, in the Albany Empire and bands used to play there all the time. It was a fantastic venue. And Gary said that the Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford were looking for a drummer to play the musical East Side Story, which was going to be at the Albany. And at that time, it had kind of coincided with my disappointment at not being able to get any kind of financial support to go to study in America. Right. And i pretty much stopped my education at that point, just right. joined us, just got into the sixth form, and just said to my mum, I'm leaving school. And she said, get a job then, mm-hmm. you have to get a job. So I was out of work for about four days. Mm-hmm. And then Gary said, Glenn and Chris are looking for a drummer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: go down. And I went down and Glenn and Chris were like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 17. And they were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, 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 I was just, I think I was just 17. And they gave me a try, and it was a very good band. It was Jeff Castle was playing keyboards, yeah. was a, a superb player. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, I did as best job I could. I sped up, started the songs too fast, yeah. you know. But I loved it, and I really, I fell in love with Glenn and Chris's songs at that point. Um, it was a lovely cast. And, um, Pam Ferris was in it, and and uh, Danny John-Jules, who, who went on to do uh, to do Red Dwarf, mm-hmm. he was in it, and Eamon Walker, who's a famous actor. Mm-hmm. Alison Limerick was mm-hmm. in it. It was a really good cast. It was, and it, it, you know, like this with the with the Madness musical that went on into the West mm-hmm. End. It should have probably yeah. gone on to do better.
0: So, yeah. was there any point in that where you thought well, playing in the musical theatre was might be a career for me? Did you consider? Sort of, you know, thinking that that well, I could do this
1: at, at that point. I really didn't care what I did as long as I was playing the drums. I, I'd still not really worked out what I wanted to do, but as long as it involved drumming, I can't. I think at that point, I sort of saw myself as a session drummer, right? But there were sessions, yeah, you know. Um. And that's what I wanted to do, be a yeah. session driver, be a bit of everything. Yes. Yeah. You know, so I could play a musical theatre. I mean, I can read. I could read music up to classical standards. Right. You know? And so, you know, I just wanted to play. Mm. Um, that came to an end and I was still during the day just auditioning for anything. I got to meet Mick Khan, the late mm. bass player Japan, from Japan. Japan. Um, and I got to play for a band uh, in a rehearsal studio in Catford that... I wasn't rightful. It was clear that I wasn't rightful. And, but they went back and recommended me to the label, which was right. Polydor, right. because the A&R man, Dennis Mundy, had been charged with finding a drummer for the Style for the Council. Star Council. So the audition for the Style Council came about five days after finishing work with Glenn and Chris. Right. So I was out of work for five days. Okay. And then.
0: But you didn't... So the question before that is... How aware were you of the Jam, and was it an influence on you?
1: Um, The Jam, I was very, very aware of. Mm. You
0: couldn't be not be aware of the Jam. jam.
1: Um, But the genre of music wasn't what was kind of on my radar, you know, because I was listening to jazz. I was listening to the Wailing Buddy Rich and Mm. stuff like that. And you know, I'd see you couldn't not see Beat Surrender, and you couldn't not see sort of going underground and, and think. You know, that's a really good band, but you know, unlike most 15, 16 year sixteen-year-old boys, it wasn't. It didn't make me cry. Mm. You know, and, and even nowadays, it's fifty-year-old men, and they still cry when yeah. Paul plays. Yeah, of course. In the city, you know. Of course. Um, but it, so it wasn't. I wasn't intimidated by yeah. that. I knew Mick Talbot because Mick had played with uh, the Bureau at um, the Albany, so right. I got to meet Mick. And, and when I went down for the audition it was, I was a bit blind I didn't really know who the band were I mm. just got told they were quite jazzy Right. walked in worked it out that it was Paul Weller's new band right. i heard Speak Like a Child which was been right. played on the radio so I thought hmm this is good this yeah. and I s- spoke to Paul and said look you know what, what are you looking for and he was like well we just want somebody that's kind of young and you know we're not going to keep people in the band for long and right. it's all going to be moving around but we want somebody that can play jazz. Right. So I just did the worst sort of Elvin Jones impression ever. And and he went, oh, that's all right. Quite good." Yeah. And he said, "Um, go see the big fella. He'll tell you where we're playing tomorrow. We're going to do a radio show." Right. And I went and saw Kenny, the tour manager, and basically said, "Paul said that I should ask you where the radio show is tomorrow cuz yeah. we're going to play." it And he went, "Well, you're a persistent little uh, so, so. so, yeah, and I was like, Yeah, well, you've got to try, and yeah. And I said, And he also said that you should give me 10 quid for my expenses, and he did. So, wow. uh, um, so basically, that was it. And so,
0: I- my question there because you never, you were never kind of like, although you did it for however long you did yeah. it, you were never the permanent drummer. They never said to you, you're our drummer, did you?
1: No, it never did.
0: So was there always a sense of that somebody else might be coming along? Or uh, did you kind of feel comfortable in that situation?
1: Well, my attitude about anything like that is as long as you're doing a brilliant, as brilliant job as you possibly can, then they've got to replace you. Right. So I never assumed, I always think that people that fail with poor, the ones that get their feet under the ta- far too yeah. far under the table and think that they're in a job for life. Um, I was... I was an honorary counsellor, I was a member of the Style Council, but it was never something that was like, oh, aren't we all great now that we're all the Style Council? We right. just didn't do it. We just, you know, and our relationship worked in a way right up to the end where Paul would literally phone me up and say, start of the year... We're going to do an album this year, and, yeah. and, and then we might go on tour. Are you up for it? And I'd yeah. be like, Yeah, you know. And there were gap, gaps in that time over the years when I wasn't playing drums for them. Right. And they got I had to get other drummers in because I'd get told that there was nothing happening, and all of a sudden stuff would start happening. Yeah. And I'd be committed to go and play with James Taylor or something right. like that because I was working. Right. I needed to work. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, people read so much into it that, oh, he's left the band, he's done it. It's, I've never fallen out with Paul or anything. Right. I just was working. Yeah. You know, and sometimes if somebody you know, says, oh, well, we're not doing much this year, then you have to think, oh, well, I'd better get a job then. i better get some work.
0: I wanted to ask how you kind of developed your sense, your kind of business awareness sense, in the sense of, um, you know, getting paid and making sure that you weren't getting stuffed, but also making sure that you weren't taking the mickey. Mm-hmm. How did you... Because it, it's all very well done up to Kenny Wheeler and saying, and he said, give me a tenner. Yeah. But it's then, you know, the next gig or the gig after that, you know, making sure yeah. you negotiate. How did you develop that?
1: I, I, I think I learned at the, at the feet of one of the masters because um, as harsh as some people might have found John Weller, he was always incredibly fair. Right. And, you know, it's like I wasn't on it huge amount of money when the Style Council were playing Wembley in 1985 but I was only 19 yeah. and, I'd only, and, and John didn't know whether I would be the drummer next year or the year after right. so it was I was happy to do the gig for what he offered to pay me and he was always incredibly straight with you Yeah, he would tell you what you would get paid and he would always say are you happy, happy about with it? that and if you said you were, you shook hands and he said, "I don't want to hear anything more about it." And on the odd occasion, I would say, "No, I'm not happy." And we'd negotiate a bit extra,? Right. Or would he'd explain why? Yeah. And unlike so much of today, I found his openness very refreshing. I right. learned from that right. And I try to be as open with musicians because musicians hate talking about money. Right. And then you'll eventually find yourself getting a solicitor's letter. Yeah. And you're like, well, what's happened here? Where did that communication break down? John wasn't like that. It was like, come into my office, let's discuss the dosh and um, get it sorted. Right. So it was all fairly easy. Yeah. I never had a contract with Paul. Right. For 25 years. Ever. Right. I never had one contract. and, And you know what, that's pretty unusual sure but John was very straight he was very straight with you and and you got your money on a Thursday you got it Got it, it used to be cash yeah and then it turned into cheques yeah you'd get it in an envelope right. as if you were like at a proper job yeah and um, you know it, it was like also, when you were like invoicing record companies, because there was money around in the record yeah. industry, it, you'd send your invoice to the accounts department. You'd put twenty eight days on my terms, and you'd get paid. Right, and that's all gone. It's right. all gone out. That, you know. So I was very lucky. Yeah. I was very lucky. And, and and as as I the longer I did with Paul, the more I started getting paid. Yeah, I earned my stripes. Yeah, and you know, and, and when we obviously um, were, were involved in. The, the Paul Weller solo years, yeah. from like 90 to 96, which yeah. were the kind of halcyon days, I got paid a shed load of money. Yeah. Got really well paid as footballers wages. Yeah. Because we were earning it. Yeah, of course. And that's, you know, and, and so I, I really take my hat off to John and, and we, we had our fallings out sometimes. And, sure. And, and, you know, and, and I remember going into in to, um, to, to tell John that, um, you know, uh, that my... Ex-wife and I were about to divorce, yeah. and I remember him saying, "Well, I've got some more bad news because I've got to cut your retainer." Oh man! <laughs> but it was like, and he went, and he sort of laughed a little bit, and I laughed, and he went, "Come on, I'll always look after you." Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, and bless him, God yeah. rest his soul.
0: So, gig three or gig four was Live Aid.
1: Uh, it was it was a little more than that right. because uh, we we were pretty much touring from right, okay. from the autumn of eighty mm-hmm. three. So all of 84, we were, making, we were in the studio uh, working on um, the first album, uh, Café Blur. And then we went to, um, we were doing a lot of stuff in Europe, going out to Italy a lot and going out and playing Germany and, and, and loving it. It was like a sort of a school trip. And then the following year when we were in the studio, um, we I think finishing off our favourite shop was when the call came through from Bob Goldoff to speak to Paul. I was in the canteen and it got sent through to the canteen at our studio at Marble Arch and he said, it's Bob Golduth. um I want to speak to Paul. So he's actually doing a take at the moment and he said, well, can you get him to give me a call back? We're doing a gig at Wembley Stadium, we're having trouble getting bodies on board, we thought Paul would be a good one to kind of get the ball rolling, could you ask him and get him to call me back? Yeah. So Paul, I believe, made that phone call and we were booked in as the first band to go on. Right. And it was only when Quo offered to do Rockin' All Over the World that we became the second band. Right. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that was how that... So tell me about your
0: days of... Tell me about your sort of memories of that day, really.
1: It was an incredible... um, It was an incredible day in many ways. Um, The organisation, in such a short space of time, was quite stunning. To pull that amount of artists together... And what you actually have to remember is that nobody knew if that gig was going to work. Yeah. Geldof, Harvey Goldsmith, McCartney, you know, there was no internet. Yeah, so yeah. they weren't emailing people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was the first, really. It was the first of the, the mega gigs. And you know what? Nobody knew how big that gig was going to be. So I like to think that everybody, although bands benefited from it, you know, U2 certainly did and Queen certainly did, Everybody turned up and did it with the right feeling in there. That. Right, that's what I feel about that gig. Were you and there?
0: So, were you there all day?
1: No, we we were there at eleven o'clock because we had a, a we had a sound check the night before. Um, we were one of the only bands that, was, that got a sound check because we were. Um, I think they could they could sound check the first three bands, and that was kind of it. So we were allowed to go down the night before, and so I got to see Wembley empty and, and see the stage and everything. And um, then the next day we got there at 11 and we were kind of hanging out backstage and they'd set a hard rock cafe up and hard rock cafe were feeding everybody all for free. Um, And then we had been been penciled in to do a TV show that day down in Kent, which, as I say, we didn't have any idea about how big this gig was going to be. And when we got there, uh, even at 11 o'clock in the morning, you could feel... The vibe, you know, you could feel the energy Mm. of the place. So we did our set and, you know, and and that was it. And we came off stage at half one and Paul went and got interviewed by Janice Long. And we had to go and do this TV show. Mm. And we went down to Kent, we were there within an hour because everybody was watching live. Yeah,
0: no traffic on the road.
1: Yeah. Did the TV show and Paul said, who fancies going back then? And we were like, yeah, come on, let's go back. We all still had our passes. So we got back about four o'clock, five o'clock and we were able to watch... Everything, yeah. you know, up until the um, the finale, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the feed the world bit. And um, I was on stage for that. Yeah. You can't see me, but I was on stage. You just yeah. see Mick Talbot, and I was standing yeah. behind him. Right. And then, at the end of the show, me and Mick got on the tube, and we went into central London and went and had a, a drink uh, with Robbie Coltrane. And we, we ended up hanging out with Robbie Coltrane and, and having a few uh, few jars in, in town. And I got on the bus home. Well, got on the 53 and went home. Went back home. Went back home, yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, you know, it, it, there was no, you know, the, 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 the kind of whole concept of fame and, and being famous was very different then as to what it is now. You know, people want to be famous. Back then people wanted to be successful sure. and famous. Yeah. You know, there's no doubting boy George wanted to be famous, yeah. but he wanted to be a good songwriter yeah, as of well. Course. And it was really when we I think a day or so later we were heading off to Japan and Australia when you had to fly up to Alaska to right. stop at Anchorage right. to refuel because you couldn't fly over the Soviet Union. Um you could still smoke on planes, wow. which was incredible. Horrible. And we went up and we flew up to Anchorage and landed at Anchorage, which was like an eight, nine hour flight. And uh, we got our hot dog and me and Steve and naked percussionist. And we went to change some money because there was a bureau de change there. And I got some, got some dollars and or some pounds and changed them to yen. And um, the lady in the, the, the teller booth said, you two were on TV yesterday, weren't you on that concert? and me and Steve looked at each other and we thought this woman has watched that concert in Anchorage, Alaska sure and that for me was a very pivotal moment in terms of what I call globalising yeah that's when I think it went global yeah you know and as I say you, you know there's been plays written about it there's been books written about it but you know from David Bailey being there taking the official shots to Prince Charles being there and Diana being there, I don't think anybody knew how big that concert was going to be. And I really do think that you know anybody that is cynical about that is a very cynical person. Yeah,
0: I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I remember watching it and I watched it because Nick Kershaw was on. Yeah, I love Nick. Yeah, Gary was playing. Yeah, Gary was playing. Which is the because
1: yeah. I when I went to uh out to Germany with the Style Council, um, the guys that managed um, the first mod band that I was in, called Flat 19, Certainly. were managing Nick Kershaw. Right. So I was in Hamburg. Mickey Modder. Mickey Modder, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was in um, I was in Hamburg and got to phone my mum up, put my, my Deutschmark piece into the call box, you know, no Skyping or anything like that, and phoned my mum and she said... Um, there's a bloke called mickey modern phoned up about look nick kershaw was looking for a drummer and i said oh i think i'm going to stay with this band i think mm. I, I really like this and um so i took his number and i phoned up and i said check out gary now they'd already got mark price playing drums mm-hmm. and they but they took gary on as right percussion. Percussion. so gary was able to kind of help me to get my first leg up yeah and I think I got Gary his leg up into the Nick Kershaw bed. Something has just
0: occurred to me that I've never thought about before. Your mum is at home on the phone, fielding calls yeah. that were going to change the face of um, '80s and '90s pop music absolutely. as we know it.
1: Well, and then you know, then she was the one that got the call from what? what what's your name? Noel. Noel. Gallag- Gallagher Noel Gallagher I'll tell Alan when yeah, he gets up. right
0: Alan was yeah, at home yeah, yeah. extraordinary yeah, so does your mum have any she's got a sense of well, what she was the, involved a in
1: a sense of her kind of importance in British pop history yeah.
0: um, <laughs> I think we should be writing a yeah, book so about um, her Kath Kath um, White Kath White <laughs>
1: the story uh, my part in the, the, my part in Britpop yeah. um, <laughs> No, she, she, you know, that, that, is she on Twitter. She, she should be. No, no. My dad's on Twitter. I know. And, and, yeah. yeah, but he, I think he's only got two followers, which is me and Chad Smith, <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. You know, but, but the, the, the only tweet he's ever done it said, "What do you do?" <laughs> <laughs> and how many? It's like Ridian guys Yeah, yeah not Ridian. Yeah. Oh, I can't
0: remember his name. Rylan, Oh, yeah, Ry- yeah. How many followers yeah, has yeah, he got? Yeah, yeah. And your dad's made more of a contribution yeah, yeah. To, to popular music well, in, in, the, it's, in our generation. It doesn't
1: matter anymore, you know. Yeah, it, it doesn't, yeah. you know, being... Yeah, you know, this is the pup that lots of young kids get sold now It's yeah. being famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I watch these shows, and, and we've always had talent shows, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually... I'm not a big um, let's all beat Simon Cowell because he's, he makes great television, mm. you know, and he's a very, very clever man, and mm. I don't think he would say he's the biggest music fan in the world. No. You know, I don't think he admits that. He doesn't no. think he says that. But what <laughs> what is getting sold very subtly is the the fame its famous and it and is it, i find it really interesting watching the you know watching these youngsters and, and not so youngsters boys girls come out with their nervous little looks on their face and and the backing track starts and and then it cuts to mum and dad who are like virtually chewing their hands off or grandma you know that's had a, a leg off and they're all chewing their arms chewing their hands off for that first note and then they hit the first note and and the tears start yeah, flowing yeah, yeah, yeah. and then then they do the warble yeah. they do the kind of what which, which is called singing which mm-hmm. is what singers are supposed to yeah. do and the audience kicks in and then the dad invariably starts punching the air saying yeah. get in yeah yeah and i find it what what are you what what's the, what what that prospect is is they're looking at is their lives being changed yeah. in one moment yeah and those shows can do that yeah but it's like Dave Grohl said you know I, I was with Matthew Herbert the writer and he said um, he says, apparently nine, nearly, a, nearly a million people apply for um, X Factor and, and want to be the winners he said what I'd like to do is give make everyone a winner and just see what they can do Yeah. He said because it's, it's not you know, Dave Grohl wrote a really good piece about why he's anti um, talent shows because he said yeah but it's the it, sometimes it's you know it, it's the ones that feel really terrible about themselves like yeah. me Kurt and um, you know, you know, the the Nirvana guys yeah. that feel sort of, and Chris that feel terrible at ourselves, yeah. that find solace in the instruments. We would have been rejected. Yeah, sure. See, we of would have been the we would have been the losers. Yeah. But we weren't the losers. Let, let, we'll
0: get. I'm sure we'll get into more of that a little bit later on. What I want to ask now is about gear, and in the time that you're using with the council. What kind of gear had you put together? What did you think was sort of important to getting a sound?
1: When I first started to, um, I, I had a Rogers kit that was the first sort of reasonable sounding set of drums. And then there's the, um, you know, the notorious story about acquiring my pearl wood fibre drum set, which right. was from um, a lovely lady whose husband had been involved in some dalliances, shall right. we say. And um, I was invited to her house thinking yeah. I might get some uh, kind of. Uh, Mrs. Robinson type action yeah and um, basically she's, she showed me this drum set yeah. that, that had been bought at Drumland Percussion which right. was a famous drum store at the time still with the, the the tags on yeah it was a pearl wood fibre top of the range kit with full set of Piesty cymbals and hardware right it's about 1500 pounds worth of pro drums yeah and I looked at it and my sort of jaw hit the floor and I thought am I going to have to do something for this yeah and I said, "This is your husband's, isn't it?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, uh, "He's going to be want to know where this is, and, yeah. you know, and, and is he going to be upset if you sell it?" And she said, "Yes." <laughs> and I said, "Well, how much do you want for it?" She said, "Give me a hundred quid." My goodness! So I went back to my dad, and I had thirty quid saved up. And right. He managed to get the seventy quid. So suddenly, I had a full pro set of drums. Right. And that they are the drum set that I used when on the Paris match version that's on top of the pots. Mm-hmm. So that's my drum set and i was using them with the star council mm-hmm. early early doors and i remember dave little the bless his heart the roadie saying we're going up to the british music fair i'm mm-hmm. going to get you a deal mm-hmm. now apart from this pearl wood fiber kit i'd never really played on a pro set of drums they right. were my drums and i went up to the um to, the, to the, the, the British Music Fair, which was held at the Russell Square Hotel yeah, yeah. in London, and Dave, with his ever-present uh, Marlborough in his hand, and, and he, uh, in his beard, took me round and, he, and he, he went up to the guys in the Ludwig stand, he went, this kid's gonna be a star, give him some drums. I was like, that's quite subtle. And we went to uh, Premier, mm. this kid's gonna be a star, give him some drums. And we went to Pearl. And Pearl, and it was a time when the BLX had just come out, yep. and the, uh, the B- BLX and the MLX, and he introduced me to the guys from Pearl, and they basically said, we would love you to become an endorser. Right. So there was this sort of lineage, because i have got a Pearl kit, so I sort yeah. of knew a little bit about the drums, and, yeah. um, and that was when I became a Pearl endorser. Right. And the thing at the time for me was what I learned very quickly was convenience there needed to be a degree of convenience about knowing that you were going to travel to Japan yeah. and get a set of drums that you know were the same yeah. and in the 80s Pearl were the kings right. you know they made really great quality drums and it's interesting because a lot of those drums now the BLX's and the MLX's go for quite a lot of money on eBay yeah, they do. they're quite sought after drums they were using great shells um, and they were really fa- you know, fabulous drums. So I was very, very content um, to use Pearl. Um, and, and, and then it, it, the distri- distribution thing was that Pearl and Zildjian were kind of in bed with each other at right. that point. Then that changes and, yes. and suddenly all the Pearl endorses are not playing Zildjian and, and right. the politics of the drum business. But I remained with Pearl happily. For about ten years, yeah, and I got very friendly with the um, uh, the Japanese side of the operation, and um, got to go to the factory and build build drums, and and felt very, very, very happy, right? Um, And loved the drums, right? And 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 at that time, I'd kind of applied myself into the um, the drum the world of drum clinics, and, and, and and always felt that this urge to have an educational side to it, which is really Proved popular. Yeah. Proved popular for me, being being very young, and in a very big band. Yeah. Um, It proved very popular for the company. Mm -hmm. So it was a really lovely relationship. Yeah. It it really worked. Um, In amongst all of that, I got this kind of bug for vintage drums. Right. Um, It it was a friend of mine called Harbens Shry, Mm -hmm. who really brought around on Radio King one day and just said, look, you know I know you love your pearl but listen to this mm. and I heard something quite different quite different in that drum that I wasn't hearing in the, the, the bright and shiny pearls mm. and I became a bit of a, a magpie to mm. be honest I, I started a collection of vintage drums but I ended up using in the in the 80s and 90s lots of combinations of pearl gear and vintage vintage drums mm. um and I was very, very happy, and I got to understand about what were the good drums, and I bought some beautiful instruments, Leeds and mm. Ludwigs, and, and um, eventually a little collection of Roger's Woodshell Damasonics, which are staggeringly mm. expensive. Um, and I loved them, and I, even now I still kind of collect the odd little piece. Like Little trinket. Yeah, little trinket. Um, so I was very happy with that combination of, of the you know, ultra-modern technical um, Japanese drums, mm. which were beautifully made, and then there was a, an incident, um, an incident that involved a very, very dear friend of mine, um, and there was, you know, an overtone of racism, mm. which for me in the music business is completely not understandable. Mm-hmm. You cannot possess a racist bone in your body, a racist, you know, cell, and think that you can be involved in music. Mm-hmm. But there was a, a hint of racism in something that happened um, and I left mm. the company. Uh, not for any disparagement against the drums mm. um, or the Japanese or 99% of the staff. Mm. It was just one particular person mm. uh, made a statement that mm. was racist right. and I felt strong enough that I couldn't b- be associated with the drum company anymore. Fair enough. So after that, I went... And bought some drums. Yeah, I went and bought um, a DW kit. And uh, having been a drummer that knew his vintage stuff, yeah, um, it seemed like the natural successor to me to go and play what was being called like the modern vintage, yeah, kind of DWs. And I don't know what it is, but for some reason, they just never work for me. Yeah, it's personal. And yeah. I know. I've seen some amazing drummers play beautifully, yeah, on DW drums. They just, you know, it's it's beer cider yeah. if, you, if you don't like cider it doesn't matter you're yeah. not going to drink it yeah. they didn't work for me because um, I always had aspirations of, of, of not being involved with a drum company you know, mm. after my situation with Pearl um, and then that's when I, I came to have a relationship with Premier mm-hmm. where, we, where we met yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. probably, properly, together, probably, properly yeah. and started to work together um, and that you know that started to extend into uh what I really wanted to do was to get involved in the design of drums, and right. to get involved in the nuts and bolts, and the, the, the you know, and eventually I, I did. I got involved in the, the, the uh, designing the Premier Modern Classic, which mm. I think today, to date, is still their best-selling snare drum ever. Mm-hmm. Got involved in the redesign of the um, Premier Series, mm-hmm. which which basically replaced the Signia and Janista drums. Um, fabulous drums. Unfortunately, it was politics, mm. again, mm. That, that destroyed that relationship mm. and um, I felt compelled to uh, to move on. Right. Um, we,
0: we can. I want, to, I want to spend some more time talking about that a little bit later on and maybe that'll have to be in another podcast. In terms of wanting just to keep an eye on what we've been talking about and the period of time we've been talking about, I want to ask you two questions before we, we let this podcast go. The first question is... Um, Bob Armstrong. Yeah. Why and how?
1: Right. Why was because I felt that there was something missing from my playing. I, I'd been taught by some very good teachers. You know, I'd had lessons with Bill Bruford. I'd had lessons with um, Bobby, Armstrong, uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby Orr. Mm-hmm. I'd had lessons with Michael Skinner and Dennis Neal and uh, George Scott, who was my first sort of teacher. But I was looking at drummers, um, people like Louis especially, and, and Peter Erskine as mm. well, and I was seeing something in their playing that didn't, I didn't have. Right. There was a grace in motion mm. that was baffling me, and I didn't have it. So I went into the West End on one of my kind of monthly patrols around the drum shop, and there used to be ten or so drum shops that you could go and wander around. Yeah. And I went into Mike Good's store, called All Bang and Strum it. I went in to see Mike, as we just used to go in, I never used yeah. to buy anything, just to go and say hello and chew the fat. And I remember saying to Mike, I'm really in need of a good teacher. I need someone that's going to show me what I feel I need to know. And Mike went, him. And there was a little A4 size picture on the wall of a little guy behind a Pearl kit, I think it was, of slightly, a haircut slightly suggesting an afro. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I.
0: (laughs) Mustache? Yeah, Yeah. and I
1: said, Who's that? It's Bob Armstrong, best teacher in the country. Bob never advertises on the web, even now. Uh, It's all word of mouth. And I took the number. Yeah. And very shortly afterwards, I found myself in the cellar, which is where he used to teach, in Stanley Road in Hall Church and asking Bob the question what is it that I don't have that these guys do and the word was Right.
0: and
1: that was when the light bulb of all light bulbs went on in my head it was never easy for me at first and I meet drummers all the time that get the whole idea of the up down stroke technique and and what it relates to and, and a couple of lessons and they're kind of working it into their playing wasn't easy for me. It took me a long time to get into the whole down, tap, up, tap, down, up. Literally mouthing it on yeah. a practice pad. But when it started to fall into place, it just felt like my drumming, for me, right. just went through the roof. Mm. I just felt so good about myself and about my playing. And then we started to... We became very good friends. Mm. And we used to really look forward to spending that. It was never an hour. It was always two hours. And we just... I was in the band, obviously. I was working, but I was studying as well. And we, we went through Charlie Wilcoxon. We went through the Jim Chapin book. We went through the Jim Blackley book. We did um, Latin. We did uh, the Gary Chafee book. Um, we did everything, mm. and one day Bob said, "I don't want you to come anymore." Yeah, he said, "I can't really teach you anything else."
0: Yeah,
1: and he's, um, and I mean, I just think it was time to move off. Yeah, and we, he said, "I want you to come back every now and then." Mm. And he said, "You don't have to pay." He said, "If you need a little bit of an MOT," yeah, yeah, yeah. which I do still go for, and um, that was the end of it. Yeah. And it was my brother that took over... Right. ...the, the spot lessons, Yeah. Having lessons. Because Alan was about 15, 16 when he started going to... Because Alan's seven years younger. Yeah. So obviously my career was well on the road. And I remember Alan starting with Bob. And it's funny because I've still got Alan's copy of Jim Chapin's advanced techniques... ...with his little handwriting on. And I remember Bob, after about six months, he said... "So um, said, how's it going about? And he went, well he's not the hardest working student that I've got. Yeah. He said, he's not the most technically proficient student I've got. Yeah. He said, but do you know what, Steve? He said, I never worry about Alan. Yeah. He's going to be in a massive band. Really? Yeah. 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 I remember him saying that to me. Yeah. He just had the feeling that, yeah. you know, Alan was very, uh, you know, with his drumming, he was incredibly uh, focused. Yeah. He, he liked the Stones. Yeah. He liked Charlie. Mm. And he liked James Brown. Right. And that's what drumming meant to him. Yeah. You know, I remember taking him to see Dennis Chambers. And you know, Alan was as we all were, in awe of but he just said it doesn't touch me. Yeah
0: yeah. yeah.
1: And I think that takes a lot to admit that. Yeah. Because we all kind of go to we've all been to gigs and clinics where we've kind of sat there and thought I should have enjoyed that a yeah. lot more, but but I better kind of...
0: But don't you find these days that happens more often with the guys that are playing <laughs> yeah, now? Yeah. You go and you, and you come away and you go, mm. well, it was great, wasn't yeah. it? But, you know, I'd rather go home and yeah. put on the meters uh, yeah. or I I'd know. rather go home and put on, you know,
1: some James, James Brown. I know, I know. But that's, I think that's, that's maturity, isn't it? And yeah. also, you know, the, you know, the way the business has changed, so business has changed so much is that, you know, there's... there's now kind of like a, a diverse... There's like a diversion now. It's like you can be a professional drummer and not have a play of a band. Sure. You're a, a yeah, clinician. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know what? Anybody that puts bread on the table... Yeah. It's good, but mate. I don't... Making a living playing drums. Making playing the drums, spreading some positivity, you know, it's better than hate and nastiness yeah. and, you know, good luck. It just doesn't really do anything yeah. for me. You know, yeah. it, it, it's... Uh, I mean, I, I listen to some... Uh, I'm always listening to new music and not so new music. And, and I was listening yesterday. Somebody played me some John Schofield yeah. with Modesky, Martin and Wood, yeah. and it sounds like the Meters. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, great sound and you know. And then I'll, I'll listen to some good pop music. And if yeah. it's you know, I really like Little Mix's last single. Right. You know, um, because it's, if it's good, it's good.
0: Well, if you sing the melody, yeah. if you sing the melody in the car. On your way home from somewhere, you know it's done its job. It's
1: past the old grey whistle. The last question I I want to ask
0: you before we finish today um, is: How important was it for you to develop your own sound, and how important was it for you to sound like Steve White? What was the sound that you started
1: with? I think when I first started out, it was like a a frenzied um, sort of sixteen-year-old schoolboy attempt to be like a very not very good Buddy Rich that's mm. what I was kind of into and and I just used to try and ape what monkey see what monkey do sort of thing but when I started working with great songwriters and at the top of the tree was Paul and the lessons that working with a songwriter like that that you get are you know as valuable as anything that mm. you can get from Bob Armstrong and he was the one that really taught me you've got to play for the song you've got to play for the record and in amongst that there was a certain degree of working out myself that you could play at Wembley Stadium and you'll play to 100,000 people which is astonishing you can play on one record even if it's not a record that charts no one knows the future that that record will have it could turn up in a film in Mm. 30 years time Mm. and and that does happen Mm. it could turn up on a Tarantino film or something so it's there forever and if you're going to do that, you've got to be good mm. at doing that. And I can't remember who it was exactly. It may, it may have been some of the influence of Ian Jury when I was working with Ian. And I was going for a bit of a bad time in terms of electronics were really taking over, you know, again. Mm. It was Simmons and Lindrums and things like that. And I remember saying to, moaning to Ian when I was around his flat, oh, you know, the Simmons and Lindrums and things like that. I, think I remember him saying, like, "Do you think Bernard Purdy gives the monkeys about drums? You know, about electric drums?" Mm. He said, "Bernard just does his own thing." He said, "And that's what you should do." Mm. He said, "Because it will come." And I really took that on board, and I thought, "You know, I'm going to. Well, what, I've got nothing to lose. I can't. Don't want to be in a position where music makes me unhappy. Mm. So I might as well just be me." And in amongst that, you know, there were lots and lots of uh, opportunities to play on tracks that have become quite sort of you know part of the fabric of yeah. British pop music it's, mm. it's nearly 50 top 20s with Paul. Mm. you know from Long Art Summer to You're the Best Thing and Ever Changing Mood Shout to the Top It Didn't Matter Paris Match yep. you know we, wars come tumbling down we can keep and that's we can keep reeling them off and I think I realised that like Ringo when you hear Ringo, you know who it is. Yeah. When you hear John Bonham, you yeah. Know who it is. So if you're confident and comfortable to be happy to sound like yourself, yeah. Then you're never going to be overawed. You're never going to get depressed. You, know? yeah. you can only be inspired. Yeah. By listening to other drummers, it's not a competition. Yeah. It's part of the art.
0: But there must have been some, a lot of trial and error in that, wasn't there?
1: There was. No. Also, there was a lot of getting. There was a lot of the opportunity to to go back and listen to myself in the studio and, and work out that, I, you know, I probably need to ditch the drum part by about 50%. Yes. 50% too much notes going on there. And But that was because I was very lucky to work with musicians that were constantly in the studio. Right. So I think it was something about Ian Dury's advice. It was something about what paul said about wanting to make you know a song the most important thing is the song mm. i mean i remember him saying to me he said why he said no one's ever bought a record because of the bass drum sound yeah yeah, yeah. and it's true Sure, he's right you know and so that kind of combination of working with such good musicians who really um you know allowed me to to contribute you know i was never told you know do this, play that, play this. I get asked to do those sort of sessions sometimes, but I'm not somebody that people hire to yeah. tell what to do. Mm. They want me to kind of bring my thing to the session. Yeah. So I think it was around that time that I really, you know, realised that if you sound like yourself, whatever that means, no one can ever take that away from you. Yeah. And that's the most important thing that anybody can do. We we have Dave Weckle, brilliantly. We have Peter. Erskine, we have Vinny, mm. we have Zigaboo Modelis we have Jabbo Starks. What we need is just to continue for young drummers to carry that torch forward yeah. and be happy to sound like themselves.
0: Okay. Well, we've we've had at least an hour now, so I think we need to try and get together again because I still have Absolutely. like another five more pages of questions. <laughs> but thank you for your time and your honesty and your input and. Uh, this is, uh, yes. Yeah, thanks very much.
1: Thanks a lot, guys, and uh, just keep it positive.
0: And uh, that's the end of uh, part one, uh, episode one of Four on the Floor podcast.